The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. It's hard to imagine a company embodying as many of the challenges and opportunities of 21st century capitalism the way Siemens does. Take your pick from trade flows and globalization to automation and labor. The German conglomerate is in the thick of it all. In addition to gas and power, smart infrastructure, and what it calls digital industries, Siemens is active in healthcare, where it makes MRIs and other diagnostics products. It's big in transportation, making passenger and freight trains. And Siemens is like everywhere, operating in more than 200 countries. Its roots are in Germany with headquarters in Munich, but it counts the United States as its largest market. And as Chief Executive Joe Kayser tells me, it's continuing to invest in the country. Joe has been with Siemens since 1980, and he became CEO in 2013. He has moved to reorganize the company with a view to ensuring each division can operate independently. He'd spun off the Health and Ears division and is overseeing a big merger of its rail arm with Francis Alstom. Among other topics, Joe and I discussed his decision not to attend a big investment conference in Saudi Arabia after earlier planning to go. And we discussed what lies ahead for the fractious European Union and a whole bunch of other things. Listen to my chat with Joe Kayser, Chief Executive Officer of Siemens. So, you know, Joe, whenever, when I think of Siemens in a way, it has all the challenges and all the opportunities of sort of 21st century capitalism wrapped up in one company. You've got globalization, supply chains, trade flows, automation, labor, kind of everything all in one company. Um, you know, when you look out uh, over at the future of Siemens, I mean, how do you put all this together? Like, how do you assess the risks? How do you assess the opportunities? What are the things that worry you the most and what are the things that kind of excite you? Well, I mean, the, the most exciting topic certainly is that um, we are on the verge of the fourth industrial revolution. There'll be massive changes in supply chain, the way we do business. And uh, all the three uh, industrial revolutions so far have made the world a better place. So the aspiration is to do it again this time. That's the most exciting thing uh, you can potentially think of because there's so much poverty. There is still a divided world out there. You know, probably two-thirds of the, of the global population, you know, would love to be as wealthy, as healthy as we are in the United States or in Germany or in Europe. So that's a big opportunity. Um, what worries me, well, look, I'm not getting paid for being worried. I'm getting paid for providing solutions and show people the way. However, um, you know, if you look at the fourth industrial revolution, it is about extraterritorial relationships. The bits and bytes, you know, they fly over the data. They go from China to the US, from US to Germany. You know, I want to see my factories be connected uh, in this internet of things. You know, everything will be connected, literally. So that actually means the future has no boundaries. By definition, because there's free flow of data, everything is being connected. If you look at today's world, it actually seems that we are moving backwards. Uh, everybody wants his or her own turf in his or her own country because our nations today are used to territorial integrity. The law is, you know, based on boundaries. And that needs to be brought together. 
Uh, and that's certainly, I believe, the biggest challenge of all times. I mean, you talk about revolu Indust fourth industrial revolution, and you, I mean, revolutions usually don't happen smoothly. <laughs> I mean, by definition, they, the word revolt is part of revolution. Yeah. Um, I mean, isn't that is that really what we're seeing? Whether it's you know these these moves to decouple from the global economy for supply chains to be moved back to the United States or wherever mm -hmm. it might be tariffs. I mean, this is these are all responses to. That in that you know quote unquote revolution isn't it? it well, not necessarily because the revolution hasn't happened yet. Uh, it is more, I believe, two things. First of all, that you know the world has become a very competitive place, so there has been unfair practices in terms of global trade. There is no doubt about this one. Having said that, though, you know we must not confuse the lack of competitiveness with unfair trade practices. Because typically, customers are not being forced to buy something. Mm. The, the American citizens are not forced to buy a Mercedes or a BMW. Nobody tells them you have to. So it is a free will to do so. So it seems this is a preference of buyers. You know, talking about uh, unfair trade practices in that aspect is a complicated matter. And I think we are well advised, everybody in the whole world, um, that we look at why is it that we have a trade imbalance? Is it because of unfair practices? Then we need to obviously act upon that. Or is it uh, the lack of competitiveness? The solution here would actually be innovation and productivity. Yeah. I mean, how, how, do you, how are you guys handicapping uh, the potential for further trade frictions around the world? I, I mean, are you are you doing anything with your supply chains or your manufacturing to kind of to, 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 well, to handicap? Well, in our, in our business, I think we're almost blessed because this is infrastructure, and infrastructure almost by definition is local. You know, infrastructure, energy supply, grid, grid uh, connectivity, um, healthcare, mobility, moving people and goods. This is all about building technologies, you know, having, having sustainable energy efficient buildings. This is all about localization. So very early on, Siemens has been localizing its uh, resources to all over the world. We do business in 203 countries in the world. We have our own operations in uh, 134 countries in the world. So we are very well placed. Look at the United States, which is our by far our biggest country in terms of revenues is more than 20 billion. We have more than 50,000 people working in the United States. So we are truly localized. We actually even are a net exporter. So that means, uh, you know, localizing early on, that's what you need to do. Giving people the opportunity to create value, create jobs in, in the country you take the money from. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the recipe. And uh, we've been doing really well in Siemens today, you know. But you can't possibly in 203 countries do we all. We are, maybe not 203, but, you know, you could sit in the biggest economies and then do the trade, you know, supply something to a country and then import something from that country so that it's a balanced, uh, a balanced transaction. We have more than 90% of our sales outside Germany. So if you, if you, if you, think of Siemens, you think about this German industrial giant with a lot of made-in-Germany attitudes like quality, ingenuity, and all that, sometimes a bit slow and bureaucratic, but all those stuff. But in reality, you know, Siemens is a global company, 
which has been born in Germany, raised in Europe, but home in all over the world. No, I mean in that sense, you're you're you you really are sort of a globalized multinational. Yeah. Do you do you think though? I mean, I'm just how concerned are you about this sort of reverse of globalization, deglobalization, as some people are calling it? And I mean, is that a, is that a problem for a company like yours? I'm not sure it's a problem for the company. I believe this would be a massive setback for global society. I mean. At the end of the day, we've been moving millions and millions and millions of people out of poverty. That did not happen by protectionism. That happened by global supply and global trade. Uh, it's a fact, whether we like it or not. So therefore, we need to be very mindful about uh, trying to set back the clock into a time where nobody wants to be anymore. Look, uh, for more than 70 years, we haven't had war. You know, like real war. I mean, where do you think it come from? From protectionism? Certainly not. It is about, you know, societies opening themselves to global trade, to global communication, to global interaction. Has there been friction, uh, you know, from overdoing the globalization, like short-termism and opportunism? Absolutely. But we should not just, you know, as the Germans say, you know, throw the whole throw the child out of the whole bath. Mm -hmm. Just maybe, you know, the baby out of the bathwater. That's that's how you say, okay. And uh, just, you know, just think about it. What is the real root cause? And then go step by step. I mean, one of the, you talk about the fourth industrial revolution. One of the the questions around that is just the increased automation that's going into manufacturing processes. And then, and that's not in transportation, logistics, everything. The idea that people are going to be um, have nothing to do, and that uh, you know the, the, the cost of labor will incre- increasingly depreciate. I mean, how worried, or how do you play? How do you sort of explain that to policymakers? Well, the way we explain it is that we said, look, um, you know, this, as you said, this is a revolution. That means there will be massive changes of the value chain, and it will be disruptive. So everything which is disruptive, not just disrupts the market, it disrupts society. And typically, it divides up society, especially the digital world is binary, right? One, Mm. zero, in, out, winner takes it all stuff. So that's why we said, look, we need to very, very carefully evaluate what are the changes, how is the labor force going to be affected by, and then start retraining people now. You know, many people talk about, well, we need to make them digital natives, we need to show them how to, need to show our children how to interact uh, with uh, with software, is, there is no point in that. Every, you know, if I see five, six, seven-year-olds, they, I mean, they act intuitively. Actually, they need to. They need to interact with people more than yeah, exactly. They, they, they can even formulate. The training we need they to can them. even formulate a whole sentence anymore with SPO <laughs> sort of stuff. So no, no, this is not the point. They learn it, you know, by doing. But we need to train the current workforce. Much more important. We spend six hundred million dollars every year on retraining our workforce to make them employable also for the future. And that's what I tell policymakers. Don't look so much in education. Look into retraining the workforce. Now, you have, you have labor represented, as most German companies do, on, at, the, at the board level or supervisory board level. Yeah. Um, how, is that, is it, it, does that give you a sort of a unique insight or, or does it just make an impediment in terms of trying to move forward? I mean, your, your business is premised on automation, labor. And, yeah, well, that, and that, uh, that what we call co-determination in Germany is not really, it's neither help nor is it, uh, you know, is it bad, it's just 
what it is. We deal with it as we deal with any other constituency all over the place. I, I do like involving the workforce in decision-making, take them along. I think that's the right way to do this in Germany is, you know, they sit on the board of a global company, but they're being elected by the German workers. So guess what that will do to the way they, they, they interact and argue. So we need to deal with it. It's, as I said, neither helpful nor 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 a problem. Um, but the real topic is talk to policymakers all over the world and talk to our customers on how we create a value chain together. That's the recipe. Right. I mean, speaking of which, I mean, you, you look at, uh, at the board level. I mean, so many German companies have embraced sort of restructuring. You guys have kind of managed to head to be a little bit ahead of that. Um, you know, you've even seen some companies like ThyssenKrupp and others who have decided to break themselves up. You guys have spun businesses off and stakes in some businesses. I mean, where's the pressure coming from? Is this is this a sort of proactive or, you know, attempt to, to deal with activism or is it just sort of an evolution that was that was just waiting to happen anyway in German industry? Well, if you if you do this because you have to deal with activism, that's typically already too late. Because activists go in where they see underperformance, uh, you know, too little, too late. Yeah. So um, that's not really. Once what, you're there, it's over. Is what you're saying. Well, <laughs> once got... you have them, I think you better think about what went wrong, and how you can get out of it in a meaningful way. The issue is that shareholder activism, by nature, is short-term oriented, which poses a challenge on its own. But it typically has a reason why they come. So one should really think about this. Um, no, what what you know what what drives me on on uh, on reshaping our company. First of all, the speed of uh, the magnitude of change and the speed how it happens will fundamentally increase in the future with the fourth industrial revolution and all things connected. That's a fact. We don't know exactly how it plays out. That's a fact. The second thing is, and this is sometimes really annoys me. And people say, ah, he's breaking up the company. And, no, I'm not. I'm creating new businesses. That's, his, that's in essence what the aspiration is. I'm creating new businesses, create new opportunities, merge the mobility with Siemens and Alstom, you know, create, create the consolidation of renewable energy with uh, Gamesa and Siemens, the world's largest renewable energy. Uh, manufacturer. So that's what you do. You create opportunities by creating new entities, and that's how we need to look at it. Yeah, I mean, that, by I the mean, same time, you actually install focus, which is the name of the game. You, and you guys have sort of restructured your business into three large, sort of, I don't know what you call it, categories, basically gas operating power, companies. Operating yeah. companies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, is it possible that you'd see gas and power, smart infrastructure, and digital industries? be their own three different companies at some point? Well, first of all, uh, uh, we have three operating companies and we have three strategic companies. Siemens Healthcare sort of is on its own already. We yeah. IPO'd them, very, very successful. Uh, within like six months, they they increased their market cap by 10 billion. Yeah. Still nothing much has happened. It's just that they are focused and on their own. And, uh, you know, we created Siemens Camisa Renewable Energy, the first one to act in a consolidating business. So we, you know, we, we go on synergies and, and create value. We do this, we intend to do the same thing on the mobility with Siemens Alstom. So mm -hmm. those three will be on their own one way or the other. And then we have the three operating companies, as you said, uh, gas and power, um, smart uh, infrastructure and digital industries. 
Those are very, very strong uh, operating companies, which they need to learn now on how to act as if they were on their own. Right. Know? Okay. So they, yeah, you don't, it's not, you don't exclude the possibility that they will be their own. Businesses. All I'm saying is I want them to act as if that was their own company. So, and we are, and we are the shareholders and they, they practice and they'll take it from there. And how are those businesses doing? I mean, you know, gas and power, obviously you're, one of your biggest competitors, General Electric, is is really having a tough time in that business. I mean, are are you seeing the same sort of headwinds that they have seen, and and if not, why? Well, look, I mean, um, <clears throat> in terms of the market uh, on power generation market, uh, it has been a fundamental decline uh, due to the fact that renewable energy has been uh, rising and increasing its share, so, so the, the gas turbine and the, the turbine market for large ones has been dropped like 40% over the last three years, and then already dropped in pricing by 30%. So just think about it, you right. know, you, you sell something uh, and then demand goes back. You sell fewer forward. of them and at lower so prices. Fewer at lower prices, so that's the, perf yeah. the perfect storm, so to speak. So that's been what the market is, what the companies did or didn't do. I mean, I, I'm not you but know. is that a is that a sort of cyclical thing, or do you think that is? No, that's not going to come back. Uh, the fossil power generation will decline over time, and renewable will grow. That's in a sense what the generation change is about. Now, does the world need uh, gas, efficient gas turbine in the future? Absolutely, as long as we have hundreds and thousands of gigawatt of installed coal-fired power plants, somebody needs to replace them. So there will be a market. But the market has been going significantly down, and uh, and competition has been fierce. And some did better, and some didn't do that well. And obviously, you know, um, this is what uh, makes a difference in innovation and uh, market proximity. Of course, m many people in the in the market sort of view, oh, Siemens, GE, they're very similar companies, conglomerates. Not anymore. Yeah, I mean, I mean, how, how do you distinguish uh, Siemens from? General Electric in that perspective. Look, that's not on me. Ask a portfolio manager what they would like to buy and to own and what they wouldn't. Um, so we, we've been, we've been uh, always very, very strong believers of uh, the value chain, electrification, automation, digital enterprise, and that's what we have been building. Uh, by, by my standards, way too slow. I really would have loved to push it much harder, much quicker. It would have been doable. We have an excellent team of people, uh, really, here in the United States, everywhere. They're really, really good. But you know, sometimes, but you also have society and you also have stakeholders. And at, a, at some point in time, you just need to balance the doable and the desirable. And that's exactly what we do. And what about the other businesses, smart infrastructure? I mean, how do you see that developing? That's pretty cool. Uh, this, uh, this includes everything which is, uh, you know, behind the meter so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, it's low voltage, it's uh, energy efficiency, building efficiency, it's about decentralized energy management. And uh, so it's, it's, it's pretty cool business. Uh, and what it does is with, the, with the, the, the artificial intelligence, what you do is you make buildings much smarter. And those old, those old models where you know, elevator companies or HVAC companies or escalator companies come in and do the service for a ton of money that will go away over time right. because we want to make the building operator be his or her own, you know, uh, person to, to call the shots. And that's exactly what we are up to. And the digital stuff, I mean, how do you see that developing? Well, our Siemens Mindsphere is the, is the world's largest uh, cloud-based uh, cloud internet platform, um, bigger than all the others together. 
what else should I say? Well, I mean, it's, I mean, how dependent is that business on on the sort of its relationships with some some of the others that you have in terms of data and? Well, not so much because the platform does nothing but uh, connecting pieces together into one. And then what you do is, based on that platform, you build the application, and that application actually is the customer value. That's the first thing. The other thing is, and that's why the, all those big software companies are are f so far failing to get into our spaces. We own the physical world, so we and we have the installed based on manufacturing. So manufacturing gives you the data up into the cyberspace, mm -hmm. and in that cyberspace, you apply you apply uh, artificial intelligence, you do data analytics, and then you find something out, something really cool, you know, something really great. But it's really something really cool, really great, you need to bring back into the physical world and make the product better. So connectivity means if you own the physical and the virtual world, this is what the big benefit is. And that's what Siemens has uh, been building a lot on, and today we are by far the world market leader on that one. Um, let me ask you about the transportation and mobility piece. You've had the, the Alstom uh, Siemens deal has the, the EU has put some uh, conditions on that. Some of them look to be relatively uh, robust conditions, shall we say. Where are you in the process of trying to work through, negotiate, and decide whether to move forward on this? Well, we've been working very diligently with the EU Commission on that matter. Interestingly enough, the Chinese uh, authorities have been clearing the deal as the first ones uh, in, in, the, in, in the, the space. And actually, the Chinese are the ones who are being affected the most by that. Yeah, nature. that surprises you because they've... It well, it, it, it is just a fact. Yeah. Um, so the European Commission has been uh, obviously being very diligent, as always. Um, what we see is that the EU has not really fully understood the global magnitude of the business, so they are very national-oriented. It's their good right. We are cooperating with them uh, and try to find good solutions, because uh, that's what we want to do. And I'll take it from there. Is there a chance that you they may push too hard, that you may have to unwind the deal? Well, as I said, we, we are in very good dialogue. The commissioner is pretty tough, but also very fair about you know looking at the facts and we'll, we'll take it from there we make our case uh, what we believe is the right thing to do for our customers uh, our, our shareholders and the stakeholders if it works our way uh, we'll be fine and if it doesn't work our way we'll you know have our plan b right uh, just speaking of europe I, I mean how concerned are you about sort of increasing euro skepticism and anti-euro anti-eu um I mean, protests. You see what's happened in in Italy. Of course, you've got um, you've got cars burning on the Champs Elysees. I mean, how worried are you about the social fabric of Europe, which is clearly <clears throat> home base, as it were? For well, it only gives you a little glimpse about what can happen if what can happen if we are not able to integrate society in the digital world. That's exactly what you see. So actually, you know, with uh, with the Internet of Things, with the fourth industrial revolution, we want to have self-driving cars in the street, not burning cars in the street. Well, that's going to so be a lot why, of people with yellow so, vests very upset. Well, yeah, <laughs> there are, but at the end of the day, you know, it is about leadership everywhere, the political leadership, the societal leadership, the company leadership, to explain to people why in the end of the day it's good for them. That you know, we do what we do. That reforms. Who, who is there to do that? I mean, right now the world seems to have kind of gone back into not only um, you know nationalist uh, sentiment, but 
you know, someone like uh, Macron, who has tried, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, has tried very hard to kind of go for the, keep the pro-EU integration uh, at, at the front uh, of, of mind. At the same time, he can, he's got unrest on his streets. And his yeah, well, first of, all, well, first of all, not the whole world is in unrest. It is more the industrial world, the, the ones who have had, you know, quite some wealth and quite some amenities uh, in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, especially in, in Europe after World War II, they're living a good life. And they want to keep it like this. And now all of a the sudden they realize globalization is a two-way street. You know, migration comes back at them and say, oh, wait a moment, that's not what I like. So uh, that's, you know, that's the challenge. Uh, and not everybody is uh, in uproar. The Chinese do their thing. Uh, India is growing 7-8% GDP. A lot of people in this world are actually, you know, getting the stuff done and work hard. So, and that actually brings us back to Europe. Why is that so important to try to formulate some sort of Europe? Because in the global scheme of things, you've got the United States of America, the most powerful nation in the world, not only by military means, also by innovation and economical power. Then you've got China. And then the question is, where does that leave this thing which is between Turkey and Portugal, which is called Europe geographically? There's a big question mark. Uh, almost it's not a question mark. Actually, it's only either we get our act together somehow and make some meaningful stuff out of the 500 million people and the biggest economy in the world, if they were all together, or not. Germany is way too small to go it alone against the big powerhouses in the world. So it would at least take uh, you know, Germany and, and France, preferably the UK, actually, you know, to make things work. I think we, you know, when Europe was being created, there is, everybody was the same, equal and stuff. And I think that's a design flow, you know, and, uh, you know, with all due respect, uh, you know, we need to respect every country which is part of the European Union. But if, uh, I don't want to touch anyone now negatively, but if Luxembourg's got the same vote, then France or Germany, well, then there's a problem, honestly. Well, South Dakota, South Dakota has the same vote in the Senate as California. Yeah, still, but the United States uh, as, a, as, a, as a nation, if need be, they stand together and act as United States, especially yeah. in the foreign economic po policy, sometimes even in military events. And that's the difference. Yeah. I don't think, I, uh, there's no point in having Europe together as one state. Europe needs a foreign economic policy, you know, uh, in the world to be on equal footage than the United States and China and, and maybe India over time. That's what we need, and that's what we got to build, either with the 27 or, or with the 27 minus X. Right. So yeah. someone needs to take the lead. By definition, it's uh, Germany and France by now. As I said, preferably with the UK, but doesn't seem to be possible at this time. Italy, well, they're busy with themselves. Uh, they have the choice to join or not. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh can I turn to uh, some other parts of the world? So uh, Saudi Arabia, you were going to go to the, the Crown Prince's um, investment initiative. I know uh, you were there the year before. And then and you said it was uh, you had an interesting statement that said 
we have to go and here's why. We have to talk to people who we disagree with. Um, but in the end, you didn't go. What, how did, what, what went through your mind through that process? Yeah. Well, actually, I put a post on LinkedIn where it described the process because this is not about black and white. Actually, it was pretty complex uh, in the way and I was trying to explain what leadership is about, really, in that example. But in a nutshell, uh, I was there last year, I was intending to go, then we had the Khashoggi case, which obviously is a you know, brutal murder. Um, uh, and then there was a lot of debate about you know, the kingdom being uh, affected by that and, and, and so on and so forth, all the way up to the top. And that. Well, first of all, I believe that every country, every nation has the right to investigate first. Sometimes it takes us years in Germany to get the murder. You need to investigate, so you need to sure. give people the time to look at it. Uh, secondly, I'm a very strong believer in any sort of conflict, that it's better to talk uh, with each other and not about each other. If you talk about each other, it never, never goes well. So I was actually intending to go there and say, look, uh, folks, uh, if you want to talk about the future of the kingdom, future investment initiative, and if you want strong global leaders like us, to participate, you've got to take care of the present first. <laughs> Figure it out, and when you're ready, uh, let us know. And, That's yeah. what I was intending to, to tell. Right. And, and, and participate and say, look, I'm here. I'm your partner. I, you know, I don't uh, want to blame 33 million Saudis for something cruel which happened. It's got to be somebody. Justice needs to be applied, and then we move on. That would have been the message. And uh, And then there was a there was a statement uh, coming right before the the, the, um, the event, saying, "Well, it was an accident. There was a fist fight, um, and then everything went south." And I thought by myself, "Well, with 15 Secret Service people just accidentally being in the in the embassy, and the body not being found because somebody who we don't know was taking it, really." And I thought maybe you know I shouldn't I shouldn't keep people busy by visiting from getting that one straight. Right. And that was the topic really. Uh, yet you know we need to continue the dialogue and uh, justice needs to be applied. We have many 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 long-term partners: Saudi Aramco, uh, Sabic, many many co uh, companies there. There's 33 million, mostly young people, who deserve a good thing. The Vision 2030 is a really, really strong strategy for the time after the oil. There's a lot of good stuff happening that women are allowed to drive. And sure. we would say, well, really. But still, it was a massive step. So there's a lot of good stuff happening, and we just need to balance everything. It's going to be, the, 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 it's absolutely true that Vision 2030, um, you know, it is visionary in the sense that it is imagining a world without, without oil demand at, at, at current rate levels. The issue is, of course, it need, it's predicated on ex, ex, you know, external investment in, in, you know, in, from the, in the kingdom, and I think that's going to be difficult now. How do you explain to your constituents, whether it's shareholders or workers, or um, you know, your policy on that front? Well, the policy is that we always need to balance between morale and interest, mm. first of all, and different stakeholders require different directions. Uh, firstly, secondly, again, you know, there hasn't been the 33 million people who, who murdered the person in Turkey. There right. must have been a few, uh, and they need to, you know, find justice. 
Um, so I think we, as the issue is that murder was so brutal and so terrible that people say, oh my God, you know, you just can't move on. True, true. We can't just move on. By the same token, we also, and this is our responsibility as leaders, we still need to be mindful about what really actually happened. One person in one place murdered by an amount of people and not by a whole country. Yeah. And you still, you still should respect what our countries have been, you know, have been developing for decades and centuries, which is to be fair and look for justice. You know, and unless otherwise proven, you know, people are first innocent, and then we'll take it from there, not the other way around. Right, right. So, and this is always, you know, it's always when emotions come to play, you know, these things blow up. There was a particular aspect here too, with all due respect, with all due respect, because it's been a journalist. But journalists are also normal people. So, you know, there's a, a lot of stuff have been come together for the global uproar, rightfully so, but then we also need to be fair about uh, the greater scheme of things. So, Joe, when you look around the world, where do you, and, and you think about uh, allocating capital, whether it's through investment or, you know, acquisitions, what's kind of got you interested right now? I mean, first of all, it is about where demand happens. But because that's at the end of the day is are the orders and, and the revenues. So we need to look at where does demand happen. Secondly, where is talent? And thirdly, you know, what actually does an economy bring in terms of deal certainty, in terms of the, the legal system, in terms of the capability of the workers? And, you know, if you put that all together, I mean, the United States of America is the place to be. Prices aren't low. I'm not talking only about uh, you know inorganic growth by acquisition. I'm talking about innovation. Uh, you know by you know spending a lot of resources here. We invested more than forty billion U.S. dollars in the last several years here in the country. So it's not that uh, you know we don't uh, we do a lot. We spend more than fifty million dollars. And that's just investment, not M and A. That's everything. Everything, right? That's everything, but uh, also a lot of uh, 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 organic investments into R and D, into engineering. Um, so, so it's a very good place to be. People are pretty good. Uh, there's good, good uh, economic system. There's talent. Innovation is being appreciated. So it's a very good place to be, and uh, and I believe that remains for for quite some time. And you're not concerned by the sort of political division, divisiveness that's taken hold in the United States and. In some, in, in, I mean, is, are you worried about stability in, in the United States? Well, I mean, if, if America is first, then, uh, then, uh, then, then Siemens America is first. So I, I'm good with that. You know, <laughs> the only one thing when sometimes I get a bit uneasy is uh, if America first uh, or any country first is being confused with any country only. Right. Then it gets a bit bumpy, but there's nothing wrong with America first. I would really be surprised if, if my chancellor would say, oh, Germany second. Oh, really? No, you want to have Germany first, oh, France first, oh, China first. That's a natural thing. So people should not get upset about that demand. My country should be first. Now, I, my country is the world. My country is Siemens. Yeah? 
And that's why my company is first. I cannot say, well, GE first and then Siemens second. <laughs> Stupid. Right, of course. It's just that the way it is. So there's nothing wrong with that. Um, as I said earlier, it very, it's very important that you always look at the root cause. If you are successful, why are we successful? How can we double down? If you are not, as a country or as a company, it doesn't matter. What's the root cause? And if the root cause is lack of innovation, lack of competitiveness, then you need to apply your resources there and not complain about unfair imbalances or things like that. I think that's the thing we really need to be mindful about. Other than that, this is the greatest country. Well, Joe, thanks for making the trip Absolutely. to Times Square. Thank Good you. luck with everything. Thanks for listening to The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Ben Kellerman, Freddie Joyner, and Andrew D'Antonio. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes. And if you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob Wilcox. Thanks for tuning in and adios.